What Paul's done here in verse 5 is, you know, the first half of the verse, if we become united with Him in His likeness of His death, He's explained that in 6 and 7, that we are crucified with Him. So this body of sin, this old master, be rendered powerless so we'd no longer be a slave and freed. Now, in verse 8, 9, and 10, he wants to talk about the other half of verse 5, which is certain we should also be in the likeness of His resurrection. So verse 8, he says, Now if we've died with Christ, we believe we should also live with Him. Now, that if almost sounds like maybe you haven't. And some might, might, you know, might hear that and this Christian say, well, maybe I haven't quite died with Christ yet. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's my problem. And that's why I need to go and out die to self. But the if here is not an iffy if. It, it's not a maybe or maybe not. Really, this if is more of a conditional statement. And, and Paul's notorious for this. If this is true, then this must also be true. So it would be sort of like if I were to say to you, if you're in Toronto, then you will be in Canada. Well, that's not a future statement or not an iffy if. That's just telling you. We could say it this way. Since you're in Toronto, then you are in Canada. And that's really the idea that what he's saying here. So after telling us that we've died with Christ, he now says, since you've died with him, we believe we shall also live with him. That it isn't just that we died, but there's a whole other side, that's the resurrection. Well, why do we know that? Verse verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now what he's doing here is he's contrasting and comparing Christ's death to what's going to be true of us in our death. And that Christ never had to die again. Why? Because death no longer has master over him. It's happened one time and it's done. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, it's not saying here that the death he died, he died for sin. That's true, but that's not what he's talking about here. Remember the question Paul's answering. Shall we continue in sin? And it's not a question of forgiveness. It's a question of does sin have its power? And so the reality is, the death that Jesus died, He died to the power of sin, the dominion of sin, the authority of sin. And He died once for all. But now, now that He's alive, now because of the resurrection, the life He lives today, He lives to and under the power and the authority of God. He's setting that up as the example, because then in verse 11, He's going to apply it to you and I. Even so, just as it was true of Christ, it becomes even so true of us. The death Jesus died, He died once. How many times do we have to die? Once. Not every day, not after you sin, not once a month. It's a one-time deal, once for all. And now the life He lives, He lives to God. So the life we live, we live to God. So that's what He's trying to say now. So even so, in the same way as verses 8, 9, and 10, yep, when God says there's a point of once for man to die, he's talking about salvation there, is he? Like because most of us would think in terms of physical death. That's what I think he was saying, physical death, when he says is appointed for once for man to die. It was physical death. Yeah. Not but, not the spiritual death with Christ on the cross. Okay. Because then goes on to talk about judgment after that. So here, so even so, the same way that Jesus died and, and, and was now alive to God in verse 8, 9, 10, same is true for us. Consider, 
Now, consider to me is kind of a, a weak word. Consider is sort of like, you know, for your break, consider having the brownies because they're really good. But you don't have to, just consider it, think about it. But there isn't really, the, it doesn't convey the strength that this word has. This is where the King James is really good. It uses the word reckon. And, and reckon here is a, is, is a mathematical term. It means kind of to reconcile. You know, when you reconcile your checkbook, you're, you're adding up the column on this side and you're adding up the column on this side to make sure they equal. You know, it's, it's something that is tangible. It's something that's factual. And that's the idea that Paul's trying to say here. So even so, reckon. No. I like this version. This is my free translation of it. Count it as a fact. That's what he's saying. Count it as a fact yourselves to be dead to God, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What's interesting about this verse, Romans 6 and verse 11, this is the first time Paul gives a command. Now, that wouldn't be significant other than the fact that the book of Romans, again, is Paul's systematic theology in Christianity. And the first time he tells us to do something, he gives us command to do something, the command isn't go out and die to self or go out and minister and preach the word and so forth. The first thing he says is to count it as a fact that you're dead to sin and alive to God. The first thing you need to do is you got to know. So after verses you know, 3, 6, and 9, basically says, do you not know, knowing this and, and what we need to know, now he's saying... Now trust it. Now reckon it. Recognize it. Count it as a fact that you're dead to sin and also alive to God in Christ Jesus. That you no longer the old person, but now you're someone new. And that's the first thing that we need to do. So now, why is that so important? Because therefore, when we recognize this, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts, its desires. Now here's the thing. Again, if sin was done away with, if sin was destroyed, then how does it reign now? It can't. doesn't make sense that it would. But if it was rendered powerless, well, then it's still around. And it may still try to reign over us, but because it's powerless, I now have the ability to not let it. And so that's what he's saying here. Reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And when you do so, therefore, you don't let sin reign. Don't let it have dominion over you anymore. Don't let it rule you that you'd obey its lust, sin's desires. It's interesting, he's almost personifying sin. And we'll really see that tomorrow when we get to chapter 7, as that idea of, of almost making sin a character, giving it a personality, which is kind of interesting to me, but... So therefore, don't let it rain that you'd obey its lust. And then it goes on in verse 13, and don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instrument of unrighteousness. So he starts off with two negatives, with two don'ts, right? Don't let it rain and don't present. It's almost like one's a choice, one's an action. The choice is don't let it rain. The action is don't present. Instead, now he's going to give two positives. One's a choice and one's an action. But present yourself to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here's what not to do, here's what to do. In essence, what he's saying is, again, answering the question, should we continue in sin? No. Instead, you now have a choice. You now are free to 
not sin. And we do that by reckoning ourselves dead to God, but alive to Christ, not presenting ourselves to sin, not presenting our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but presenting ourselves to God and becoming an instrument of righteousness. In essence, you and I become this instrument. Now the word here, instrument, that we see in verse 13, is essentially a weapon. So you kind of imagine the Romans reading this might have pictured a Roman sword or something like that. You know, today, the, the NRA, they had the slogan that guns don't kill people, people kill people. And despite your opinion on guns, that's, that's not the point here. There is some truth to that idea. That it's not the, person, not the gun itself that's killing them, it's the guy behind the trigger that's pulling the trigger that's killing people. Right? It's, it's the people doing it. And so the gun in of itself isn't bad. Or let's think of it another way in terms of a knife. A knife in of itself isn't bad. It depends who's behind it, who's holding or who's wielding the knife. For example, you put a knife in the hand of a mugger and guess what that knife is used for now? It's used as a weapon of terror. It now becomes an instrument that causes harm and, and fear in people because of the person wielding it. You put that same knife, however, in the hands of a surgeon and that knife now becomes an instrument of life. It can do an operation. It could save somebody's life. So it all depends on whose hand you place that weapon or that knife into. And that's what Paul's saying here. You and I now have a choice. This is why we don't continue in sin, because we don't have to. We now have the choice. Do we let sin reign? Do we place us, the weapon, into the hands of sin? If we do, well then we become an instrument of unrighteousness. Now we hurt people. But... If you put you, that same weapon, in the hands of God, you now become an instrument of righteousness. Now you get to love people. You get to help people. Does that make sense? So what's interesting here, you know, a knife doesn't get to choose, whether it's in the hands of a burglar, a robber, or a doctor, or so forth. But you and I, we do get to choose. Nobody chooses for us. That's up to us. That's the freedom that God's given to us. Do we choose to present ourselves to God? Do we choose to present ourselves to sin? If you do, to sin, you become an instrument of unrighteousness. But if you present yourself to God, you're an instrument of righteousness. So let me let me see if I can illustrate it to you with this diagram here. It's similar to one we were looking at before. So we got a C here in the spirit. That's to represent Christ who's alive in us. But again, here's our body of sin and dwelling sin in the body here. And what ends up happening is sin begins to plant thoughts in our mind. It begins to wage war with our mind. It says that in Romans 7.23 that this sin, is this law of sin is waging war with my mind. And what it's doing is it's trying to drop thoughts into my mind. Trying to get me to do what it wants me to do. But it's going to do it in a, in a way that I might not recognize it. And so... <clears throat> It's dropping these thoughts in my mind and what ends up happening as my mind gets racing, as my mind gets going, now my emotions start racing with that as well. So maybe he's what sin's doing is sin's dropping these thoughts in my mind about how I'm, I'm deficient in some area. How maybe I feel alone and my wife's not treating me properly and my kids aren't listening to me and my, my friends have kind of abandoned me. So because of all those thoughts in my mind, how do I begin to feel? I feel alone, I feel sad, 
I feel unloved, I feel empty inside, I now begin to feel a need to get love somewhere. So now that my emotions are all riled up, now it presents a choice, an option to me. Well, now you can go find that love somewhere else. Maybe you go to, I don't know, ice cream. Start eating your way out of it. Or maybe you go just bury your problems in TV and you start watching the sports and Olympics and so forth. Or maybe you go and you, you just leave the house for a little while and you ignore other people. Or maybe you go online and you begin to do, you know entertain yourself and fantasies online and relationships out there. Or with other you know illicit relationships and so forth. Whatever it is, what's happened is indwelling sins planted these ideas in my mind, got my emotions all riled up, and now in that right moment is presented it with my, to my will this choice. And if I let sin reign, if I let its lust reign, then guess what? I will choose to become that instrument of unrighteousness. And my my production will be either sins at worst or at best, dead works. And notice it was my choice to do so. I chose to follow sin at that point. I didn't have to. Because why? Well, the old slave died. This old man used to be the slave of sin, but now he died, and now he's got a choice. But I didn't make a good choice. So what would be a good choice? Well, again, the the best thing would be when sin comes knocking on that mind and start putting all those thoughts of, I'm alone and nobody loves me and my wife's not treating me well and, and blah, 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 for me to say at that moment, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not reality. And even if she doesn't love me, I'm loved by Jesus. So I am loved. And it, you know that's the best place to do it. It's kind of like a, a salesman, right? Have you ever had a vacuum salesman come to your door? I had one one time. A vacuum salesman came to my door. I made the mistake. I let them into the house. It took me four hours to get rid of them. You know, you, you open up the door, you close the door, you turn around, and suddenly, out of nowhere, they've assembled four vacuums, throwing dirt on the floor, and they say, now let me show you how it cleans up. You're like, what What just happened here, right? And your head's spinning. And, and it's a whole lot harder to get them out than it would have been just say, no thank you, and close the door. Well, the same is true with sin. Far better to get it here. But we don't always do that. Sometimes our emotions get all involved. Now it gets harder to think clearly. Because now I start to feel it. Now i got an emotional need or an emotional attachment to it. But again, I could stop it at this point. But if I don't, now it comes to my will. Up to this point, have I sinned? No. It's not a sin to have a sinful thought. Did you realize that? Every person who has ever walked the face of the earth has had a sinful thought at some point in time. Who do I include in my list? Jesus. How do I know Jesus had a sinful thought? Because the Bible tells us. Remember in the wilderness where he was being tempted? Along comes Satan. Turn this rock, this stone, into a loaf of bread. Now the sin wasn't the miracle. The sin was trusting in himself. Did Jesus think about doing it? He could have done it. Did he think about doing it? That was the question. Well, he could have do it around the Did he think about doing it? Well, he must have it. He had to because he gave an answer, right? Otherwise, if he didn't think about it, then what's he saying no to? A roast beef sandwich? Right? I mean, he's saying no to it because he thought about it. Do I want to do it? No, I don't want to do it. No. 
It wasn't a sin to have a thought. The sin would have been to act on the thought. Now, just so we're clear, you know, when I say it's not a sin to have a sinful thought, does that include, say, lust or coveting? No. That's an action of the mind. So it's not a sin when the first thought first comes into your mind, but when you begin to act on it and begin to dwell on it and begin to kind of, you know, stew in that thought, well, now I've made a choice and now I'm acting on it. And so that is a sin. But it's not a sin just to have the thought because it's coming from sin. And now the choice comes to my will and I can block it here. If I haven't blocked it earlier, then the, now i got to block it at this point and say, wait a minute, I don't have to listen to sin anymore. I'm dead to sin. It's no longer my master. And now I'm alive to God. Now He lives in me. So here I am, Lord. I am presenting. I am yielding. I am submitting. I am surrendering myself to You that I may be an instrument of Your life, of Your righteousness, for You to live Your life in and through me. And when that happens now, He begins to live through me. And now His righteousness, His life, begins to be manifested through us. Does that make sense? So the first diagram was really a picture of walking after the flesh. Whereas the second diagram is really a picture of walking after the Spirit. A Christian can do either. The question is, who will you submit yourself to? Who will you present yourself to? And it all starts with, wait a minute, reckoning, realizing I died to sin, and now I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's those two parts that are so necessary. I think that's essentially what Galatians 2.20 is saying, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, the old me who lives. That's reckoning myself dead to sin. But now Christ lives in me. In the life I live today, I live by faith, trusting the Son of God to live His life through me. And now that's reckoning myself alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's these two sides or two steps that allow us now to begin to walk out the Christian life. Every time we're tempted, we have an opportunity to glorify God. Yeah, absolutely. We need to remember that. Yeah. It's not, there's no sin in being tempted. And we need to confess that we're in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Yeah. And when you blow it, and when you blow it, what are you still? The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Right? Alright, did that, did that answer your question, Sue, about the, the flesh? All right. Could you repeat, what would yeah. be a reference you use for the, the sin dropping thoughts in my mind? Romans 7. Romans 7, 23. Yeah. So verse 14 is both the conclusion as well as it is a bit of a transition. And so he concludes and says, you know, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace. So <clears throat> what's interesting here is if I put myself under law, what will master me? According to this verse. Sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. But if you go back to the law, what masters you? Sin does. Sin begins to dominate you, begins to control you. And now, <clears throat> that raises a whole other set of questions. Well, what then? He goes, and he knows the question. Verse 15, what then? Should we sin because we're not under law? I mean, is that what it is? We're not under law, but under grace. That means we just go. We can go do whatever we want. 
I mean, the other question that people I hear from people is this idea that if there's no law, then really there's no consequences to my sin. Well, that's the fear. That's I mean, are you saying there's no consequence? Because it's almost as if the consequence is the only thing keeping me from sinning. That there's this fear that if if you remove the consequence, that that God's no longer angry with you. We take that away, then people will go and sin. Or you take away maybe the fear that they might, you know, they might not lose, take away the fear that they might lose their salvation based on their behavior. You take that away, and suddenly now, how do you control them? How do you keep them in check? And so he's addressing that question now. Shall we sin because we're not under law? Because there's no longer that, that hammer coming down on us because we're not under law but under grace. Well, may it never be. Again, now you don't understand. And he's going to explain that. And so in verse 16, he's going to answer the question in whole and then explain it. Verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? The short answer is there are still consequences. Now, they're not spiritual consequences in the sense of my relationship with God, in my standing with God, in my acceptance with God. That's been settled, right? That's what Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Instead, the consequences I face are consequences in this world. Either good or bad. Either resulting in death or resulting in righteousness. That's what he's trying to say to them. One of the things that we've, we do with our kids, Viard and I, is, is we kind of drill a motto into their heads. Every time they, they either do a bad choice or a good choice, we tell them, life is about choices. And choices have consequences, so you need to make good choices. And it's funny, because when we say it to them, we kind of, we're drilling it into their head over and over again. So we don't even have to say the whole thing now. We just say, life is about, and they fit choices. And choices have consequences. You know, they don't like it when we're saying it sometimes because, you know, they're in trouble. Bella's the cutest because she's got a bit of a lisp to it. So, <laughs> choices, consequences. So, you got to make good choices. Right? And that's how, but we're drilling that into them. And we're doing it at an early age because we want them to know that every situation they got a choice in. Choice to trust, a choice not to trust. Choice to present themselves to God or a choice to present themselves to sin. And based on that choice they're going to have to live with the consequences of those choices. And we want them to learn at a young age so that when they get older, they'll make good choices. Because as little kids, the consequences are pretty minor. When they get older, the consequences become pretty big. So if they can learn the lesson at a young age, they're far better off at an older age. Well, Paul's saying the same thing here about the fact that your choices have consequences. And the choice is whoever you present yourself to, either as a slave uh, to sin, and the consequence is death, or obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, let's understand death here, uh, at just at the beginning here, because people might read that and they might say, well, sin resulting in death means separation, and therefore every time I sin, I'm now separated from God. Well, if that's the case then he's completely blown out of the water what he just said in chapter 5. Right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Well, if 
if that's it, if, if your sin results in you separated from God again, then how much grace was there? Apparently not enough, right? So he's not talking about death and separation from God. Instead, he's talking about what we experience here on earth. Remember the context here. The context is right now, shall we continue in sin? That we're not under law, but under grace. And the answer is not right. No, because right now, every time you sin, guess what you experience? Death. What he's talking about is that what you begin to experience in your soul and in your body. And I remember one day thinking, Lord, how do I explain this idea of death to people when we sin? That you know the wages of sin is death. How do I explain that to people? And and he, you know God's the master teacher, and this is what he told me. He says, just ask them how they felt the last time they sinned. It's amazing how everyone has it last time they sinned, right? Have you noticed that? Everyone sinned at some point. How did you feel when you sinned? Felt really bad, right? You feel empty. You're down on yourself. You're feeling maybe despair, despondency, maybe depression. Maybe there's fear. Uh-oh. Have I? Have, there are going to be greater consequences to all this? So that sense, that's death. That's what you're experiencing. That's the way. It's the natural consequence to sin. And it could have physical consequences to it. I mean, if I go and I rob a bank, and in the process of robbing the bank, I get shot then clearly there's a physical side effect to that, right? Or maybe I begin to use drugs. And so I begin to use my body. Well, now my body begins to feel the effects of that drug abuse. Or maybe, you know, I commit adultery. And so I begin to commit the sin of adultery. And guess what? It results in the death of my marriage. It may also result in my physical death. You never know. But <laughs> but it's that death that I'm experiencing solically and physically. That's the death he's, exper- he's speaking of. He can't be speaking about the spiritual death because otherwise he's throwing grace out the window. And it's no longer about what Jesus has done. It's all about what you've got to do. Yeah. How does uh, Ananias' fire fit into this? Good question. Yeah, good question. Um, and, and there are many stories in the New Testament that speak to this aspect of things, right? So, 1 Corinthians 11. So let's start with Ananias and Sapphira. That's the couple in Acts, where uh, the people at the time, what they were doing is they were selling their possessions and they were giving it to the church so the church could distribute their the, the money and the goods amongst everybody in, in the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they saw how people were being praised and, and just thanked for this great sacrifice. And they thought, hey, you know what? I want a piece of that action. I, I want to have that praise. So they get together. They decide to sell all their possessions, but they keep half the money at home. I don't know where home was, but they kept half of it back. And the other half they gave to the church. Now, the reality is, how much did they have to give? None. They didn't have to give any. But they thought they were going to play God. They, or, I mean, run a scam on God. That's what I mean by that. But they thought they could sneak one past Him. And so they said, yeah, we give it all. But they, only, they kept half. And so they come before Peter and Peter tests each one individually. And when they lied, what did, it, what did the Holy Spirit do? Struck them dead. Now, did they lose their salvation? Did they, did they spiritually die and became separated from God in that moment? No. 
There is nothing in that story to tell us that's what happened. All we know is they were physically struck down. Another great illustration is is 1 Corinthians 11. Let's turn to that one. 1 Corinthians is that, you know, that body church, right? They're getting drunk. They're abusing the Lord's table. So they're not eating at home. They're just eating at church and, and, and getting all fat there. They're suing each other. Four-way church split. Abusing spiritual gifts. All kinds of problems here. And so in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, Paul talks about these people. And we'll start in verse verse 29. He says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So here he's saying, because of your sin, what are you experiencing? Death. It's taken the form that some are weak, some are sick, and some are asleep. Now, does that mean some are napping? No. No. In the New Testament, when they would, when a believer died, they would often use the, the phrase, they've fallen asleep. Because what do they know about that person? They're with Jesus. They're, they're more alive than you and I are alive. Right? And so they use that terminology that they're asleep to, to remind them that they're actually still alive. So here are people whose, whose sin has resulted in their physical death, but he makes it clear to say that they've only fallen asleep. What's he affirming? their salvation. They're still saved. They're still righteous. They're still loved. And they're with God right now. So in that case of Ananias and Sapphira, in that case in in Corinthians, essentially what you have is, is you have God saying, you know, enough's enough. I love you, but you just aren't seeming to get the message. And so it's time to bring you home. It's time to pull you off the field of play. But I still love you and I still accept you. But your time here is now over. And, and so that had maybe physical death, but it wasn't their spiritual death. Contrast that then, the obedience resulting in righteousness. It's not resulting in my righteousness that I now become more approved, more accepted to God. Instead now, it's the righteousness of Christ being expressed in and through me. Ross, I wrote a little side note in my Bible here. Back a while and I just put beside it and I asked Sapphire why we or this here why we <coughs> not to participate in the Lord's Supper unworthily would that, that be a correct statement of Ananias and Sapphira well or in 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 11 yeah that we don't uh, don't participate in uh, the Lord's Supper unworthily um. Yeah, I mean, I think we take it seriously that it's it's not a game. Yeah. All right. So so back to Romans here. So he's going to explain now verse sixteen in the following verses. So verse seventeen. But thanks be to God that you that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So he's kind of going back to when they before they were saved. Right, but thanks though when you were slaves to sin, when before you were saved, you became obedient from the heart, from the very core of your being. You received the gospel, however it was presented to you, whatever form of teaching, whatever you heard, you trusted in that, trusted in Christ as your savior, and so having been freed from sin 
because now you're placed in Christ and you're crucified with Christ and buried and raised up with Him. Now freed from sin, you now became a slave of righteousness. You used to be a slave of sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. Now, just so you're clear, he goes, I'm speaking in human terms. He's using this illustration of slavery. But it's not that you're actually a slave of righteousness. Now, he's just trying to present something. It's, it's an illustration. So I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, so you can understand it. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Or another translation has resulting in holiness. So what he's saying is, you know, before you knew Jesus, you were all in on sin. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's no sin that's too sinful. You would just do it. So it was sin resulting in more sin. That was sort of your mentality. Well, now present yourselves in the, to the same degree to God. All in. Here I am, God. And what happens as that slave of righteousness, as that slave to God, it results in holy living. Presenting yourself to God. Just what he had said earlier in verse 13. Present yourself to God and you become an instrument of righteousness. Remember, the question he's answering is, shall we continue to sin that we're not under law and under grace? No. We're to continue to live a, a, a good life. We're continue to live right. I mean, a, a parallel verse would be in Galatians chapter 5. Turn with me there if you want to Galatians chapter 5. In verse, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. You're absolutely free. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So you're free. You're not under law. But don't abuse that. And you know why? For your own sake, don't abuse that. Never mind other people, but for your own sake, don't abuse it. Because when you do, guess what you get to experience? Isn't that exciting? Right? Instead of that, use it as an opportunity to love one another, to serve one another. That's holiness. That's sanctified living. That's the righteousness of Christ. Verse 20 goes on, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Righteousness had no impact over you. I mean, I've, I've talked to unbelievers, and, and you talk about you know righteousness and so forth, and it, just, it goes over like a lead balloon. I mean, think about in our society today. If you, if you have an opposing view to gay marriage, that, that, just, that doesn't fly anymore. Right? Because that's not tolerant. And you have to be tolerant. And if you're not tolerant, then we'll be intolerant towards you. It's kind of how it works, right? And so they, they don't get it. And not, why would they get it? Righteousness has no impact over them. They're under the dominion of sin and of death. Verse 21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? I mean, think about your past. Think about the sins that you've committed. Not to beat yourself up, but think about, are you proud of those things? I mean, do you want to put those on a billboard somewhere? I don't. I'm really glad Jesus took them away and they're gone. They're destroyed. They're, they're never coming back up again. I'm happy about that because the outcome of those things was death. So think about it. Do you really want to go on that living? No. 
Remember the question he's answering. Should we continue in sin? You don't have to. Why would you? I mean, the, the answer really is the polar opposite to the question. The great fear is you would. And the reality is, you don't want to do that. Goes kind of go back to all the way to, to chapter 6, verse 2, right? We who've died to sin, who we are in new creation now. We want to do the exact opposite. Verse 22, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. Again, you're not really slaves, but he's using it to help us understand it. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Now we've got good. And then he kind of summarizes in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life's about choices, folks. Choices of consequences. Present yourself to sin, you will experience death every single time. I've done that experiment. Let's find out what sin does. Oh yeah, it still feels like death. <laughs> wasn't sure so I had to experiment right but it will exalt to death but you make a choice to present yourself to, to God as an instrument of righteousness and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus you get to experience Him you get to experience His power and look at it one is wages one's the free gift wages is something that you work for you earn you deserve the free gift is something that's freely offered, freely given. It's kind of similar to Galatians 6, right? 6 and 7. The one who is... Uh, sorry, verse 7. 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Right? I mean, think about the farmer. The farmer that plants corn, what does he get? Does he get wheat? No. The farmer that plants an apple tree, does he get an orange tree? No. You plant corn, you get corn. You plant an apple tree, you get an apple tree. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Kind of makes sense, right? If I go and I sin, there are consequences. It doesn't change my relationship with God. It doesn't change my standing with God. I'm still forgiven. I'm still loved. That's that static DC grace kicking in. That unmerited favor that's always there. But I'm also free to experience the consequences of that choice. Broken relationships. Feeling alone in this world. I mean, if I, if I live out of my flesh, not only am I going to get hurt, but who's going to also get hurt? Those around me. And they won't want to be around me anymore. And so I'm free to live alone. I'm free to be miserable, to feel empty, to feel unsatisfied. You have that freedom. But who wants to feel that? Who wants to experience death? But the free gift, the opposite, is what God's offering to you and I. Does that make sense? What I find interesting, verse 23 is often the verse we quote for salvation. But that's not what Paul's talking about in verse 23. He, he's talking here more to the Christian. And it's not separation from God, it's just misery, despair. Why is it 
Because it's in the book of Romans. <laughs> I mean, th- there is... Yeah, it is. Because they like the phrase, the wages of sin is death. Which is true from a, um, uh, from a, a salvation point of view. The wages of Adam's sin was your death. Um, the, you know, a better verse to use would have been Romans 5.12. To the one man's transgression, death spread to all men because all sinned. But that is a little bit harder to explain maybe and harder to remember. Whereas the wages of sin is death is real easy to explain. Um, that's why it's included in the Romans Road. But, but if you look at the context of the passage, it's actually speaking to the believer as a choice, as a warning. So really what you can say is for the wages of sin is negative consequences in this life. Yeah. Yeah, negative consequences. But the free gift of God, when we go to Him and we walk with Him, guess what it is? Positive consequences. It's you start feeling good about yourself. You got a you got a healthy self esteem. You're you're able to hold your head up high. You're you're sleeping well. You're eating well. You're you're not feeling anxious and worried. You're not looking over your shoulder wondering oh, did, did anyone see that? Are you you're, you're not you know terrified. Whereas when you're living uh, walking after the flesh, that is what you're experiencing and feeling. When you say good consequences, you don't mean like freedom from suffering, or you just mean like. Oh, I mean Rolls Royce, trips to Tahiti, um, you know, gold suits, private jets. No, no. The the positive consequences is um, is that sense of you know the opposite. Think of it, you know death is when you blew it. Think about that time when you trusted Christ. And you know, just we're in that zone, and you you just had that sense that God did something miraculous to you. You didn't win the lottery, you didn't win a million bucks, you you know, you didn't change the world necessarily, but you just felt like, wow, this is this is life. Well, that was Jesus in you, and that's what you're experiencing. That's the positive consequence: experiencing the life of Christ. And you know what? As much as it'd be great to go to Tahiti. Experiencing Jesus is far better. Experiencing Jesus in Tahiti, however, <laughs> I could do that. I could do that. I could learn to live with much. So, let's pray, Father. Because of what you have done, we've been redeemed. We've been set free. And as we've been studying in this great chapter, we've been set free from ourselves. Who we used to be has died and gone out of existence. That slave has been set free, meaning we've also been set free from sin. That doesn't mean we never sin, it just means we don't have to anymore because of what you've done. And I pray, Father, now as we go from here, you would remind us of this truth. That we would be reminded of what took place in that cross was not just Jesus dying for us, but us dying with Him. So we no longer have to live that old way. But now you and your powerful resurrection life formed in us can now be expressed through us. Thank you for what you've done. We give you glory and praise. In your name we pray. Amen.